Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Damien Barr, and do you know what? It's my birthday. <laughs> so happy birthday to me. I hope you are having an equally lovely day wherever you are. This is Salon Exclusive, and we are presenting another one of the books that we're very excited about. And this one, as soon as we heard about it, we were like, send us the book, give us the book now. This is Love from the Pink Palace. The Pink Palace, remember the Pink Palace from our salon with It's a Sin um, and the lovely Russell T Davis? Well, this is the book by the real life Jill. Yes, Jill Nolder. You'll know her story. She was in the Pink Palace. She was there guiding those young men through their lives and her own story. And it led to that expression, you know, we should all be more Jill. So anyway, this is Jill's own voice, her own story, and it's an absolute joy to read. On the back of the book, Jill writes, I have now spent nearly four decades keeping the secrets of those who have gone, along with the secrets of those who remain alive today. The responsibility can sometimes feel like a great weight, but it was then, and still is now, a privilege to be trusted. So this really is incredible. Jill is an actress, and very successful actress, and an activist in her own right. And this is just a very beautiful reflection, and it's beautifully written too, I have to say. When Jill was starting out, she was surrounded by talented, fabulous gay men from every walk of life. And they became a family for her, a chosen family, and supported her to achieve her own potential, which is the journey that we're all on, whoever we are. And then when the AIDS crisis emerged, Jill's life was completely transformed by death. She lost so many close friends and she became a campaigner all the while trying to keep her own career and her own life going in the West End. So anyway, we should all be more Jill and once we read The Pink Palace, you will be more Jill. And here is Jill Nolder reading from her memoir, Love from the Pink Palace. Hello, I'm Jill Nolder and I'm absolutely thrilled to be here today reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my new book, Love from the Pink Palace. I wrote Love from the Pink Palace after the TV series It's a Sin for Channel 4, written by my very close friend Russell T. Davis. It seemed that It's a Sin inspired so many people to ask about life in the 80s, to ask about what it was like to live through the HIV and AIDS crisis. So this is the reason that I wrote the book, because I wanted to tell the story of what life was actually like, of what we lived through, what I felt I lived through, and most of all, what I felt that my dear friends that were at that time young gay men, what they lived through. They were not only faced with a terrible, debilitating and awful illness, but they were also faced with secrecy, with stigma, with rejection, and they were also faced with a great deal of prejudice. So I feel like I wanted to pay tribute to their amazing courage and bravery and also their zest and joy and all the fun that they brought to the people around them. And so I wanted to... Uh, write about that really just to tell people what life was actually like in the 80s what it was like to live through the HIV and AIDS crisis through my eyes and um, from what I remember of the amazing joy and fun 
that we had and those very special boys brought to our lives. I'm chosen a part of the book which I think is towards the beginning when we are, well, we're in our 20s anyway, so we're very young and carefree and there's a realisation that something quite terrible could be around the corner and up to this point really we have my friends and myself we have pretty much thought that there is a disease but it seems to be in America so we don't know much about it and I, I suppose you just do that human thing where you don't really think it's going to affect you and gradually there's a realization that something is around the corner and something quite terrible could be around the corner. Um, the characters that you meet are my friends. Jay specifically is my very good friend and we were living together at the time and working together and the names in this chapter are very much people that we work with that we have known for quite a while. Paul and Joey and we are all having um, a lot of fun. So here is a short reading and yes, I hope you enjoy it. Chapter four. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. Marie Curie. The week began with the sun shining through our front window. As Jay looked outside, he noticed someone familiar walking out of the house opposite ours and he called me to see. It was a friend from Jay's and my Swansea grand days and incidentally, he was also known to me even before that from a tour of Godspell that changed my life. Paul, who we camply called Madge Burton. We rushed downstairs to catch him, shouting to get his attention. When he saw us, we all shrieked in the middle of the street at the realisation that we were neighbours. It turned out that he and his boyfriend, Joey, had been house hunting. And it was one of those quirks of fate that of all the millions of properties in London they could have chosen, they put in a successful offer and had moved into our street. We began spending a great deal of time with them. And it was through them that Jay and I got the news that there were plans afoot to open a new nightclub in the West End. The club was born as a result of a New Year's Eve party in the piano bar in Soho, a regular haunt for anyone looking for a late night drink after a show. Joey was the bar manager and Paul was the bar's pianist and so they were both very well known. On this particular New Year's Eve, however, they had looked almost unrecognisable as they turned up in drag for the first time. Initially, Joey told us, he hadn't been too keen on the idea but with his gorgeous Malaysian complexion and high cheekbones, he looked very beautiful. Paul, on the other hand, being of tooting origin, looked more like Miss Marple. Despite the fact that Paul was not quite the belle of the ball, the party-goers lapped up this new drag duo and Joey's newfound glamorous persona was particularly well received. The party was a great success and as a result, the idea for a new nightclub, a glamorous drag club, right in the centre of town, full of diverse and wonderful people, was born. Joey was to be the hostess and would be dressed as the beautiful woman he had created. There would be cocktails and dancing, beautiful barmaids and fabulous shows. In keeping with the vibe of Soho, it would be called Madame Jojo's.
of course. Every great West End club needed great entertainment and Jay and I were up for the challenge. We formed a new act, which we called the Nightwalkers. A great name, we thought, catchy and naughty, but not too risque, just right for showbiz and Soho. There were six of us in the act, including me, Jay and my friend, sister, John Hogg. We were booked to appear nightly, Jay would play piano and of course we would sing show songs. We thought we were sexy and fun, performing songs like Touch a Touch a Touch Me and Sweet Transvestite from the Rocky Horror Show. One of our favourite songs to perform was the Deadwood stage from Calamity Jane and we changed the lyric Whip Crack Away to Whip Doris Day, thinking this was the most camp and witty thing ever. With our set list perfected, we were ready. And so was the club. Madame Jojo's was decked out with an indulgent colour palette of deep reds accentuated with silver sequins, lit by sparkling chandeliers that offset dark, intimate corners. Altogether, the club was a perfect balance of glamorous and seedy. And it was an immediate success. The stage was regularly graced by a plethora of divine drag artists, such as the inimitable Tiny Ruby, a.k.a. Ruby Venezuela, who was anything but tiny and wore so much makeup it must have added an extra stone to her already ballooning physique. There was Ziggy Cartier, who sailed into the room looking as though a strong wind had blown in from the right, followed by a sudden breeze that fixed her hair in a solid mass on the side of her head. She towered above everyone, every bit of six foot six in her heels, with an enormous fixed smile that was so wide her lipstick touched both ears. Then there were, as planned, the barmaids, the barbettes, beautiful, shapely boys in fishnets and stilettos, graced with glamorous names, Mitzi Martini, Astral, Scarlet and Poison Ivy. They served drinks and paraded their gorgeous bodies, generating jealous looks from the female clientele who longed for legs that good. Into this world came the night walkers, fully rehearsed and costumed. Each night, for the next few months, it was Ziggy who introduced our show, muttering through her immovable lips into her lipstick-stained microphone and never quite getting it right. One night we were the street walkers. And the next we were the Night Riders. It took about three weeks to fully introduce us as the Night Walkers, but whoever we were, we put on a bloody good show. One night, after a particularly fun performance, a group of us, the Night Walkers, our friends, and a few friends of friends, were sitting around the candlelit tables. The place was packed and a haze of cigarette smoke hung over us as we drank a bottle of wine. We were all in great spirits, and Jay was talking about the show as usual, when one of the barbettes approached and asked, Has anyone seen Kent recently? Kent was a pretty Canadian boy who frequented the piano bar and Jojo's. He'd been seen in West End shows and was a great dancer. The barbette looked concerned, and we all looked at each other, shaking their heads and... We realised nobody had seen him in a while. Well, I saw him a few months ago, one of our group said. No, it was longer than that, the chirpy barbette chipped in as they set a fresh round of drinks on our table. 
I thought he looked thin the last time I saw him, they added, holding a now empty drinks tray to their chest. He seemed fine when I saw him, our friend responded. Maybe he's gone back to Canada, someone else said. I don't think he was very well. This was met with a knowing look exchanged between us all and I felt a pang in my chest. Our conversation dwindled as we absorbed what we'd heard. I could tell we were all thinking the same thing. There was only one thing that was causing boys to disappear without warning or to go home without a word. I'd heard of it happening to strangers, but this was the first occasion involving someone I knew, even if I'd only known him for a short while. The thought produced a strange kind of loss, because Kent was not a close friend by any means, just someone who we saw often and liked a lot, and also because he was our age. Alongside the tangible cigarette fog, another invisible mist seeped into the room, and now it hung heavily over us. We discussed whether he had a boyfriend or whether his family knew, and the boys began to question what sort of sex he was into. It's more dangerous if you have rough sex, a mutual friend at our table said. Leather queens are really at risk because they like rough sex, came a stereotypical comment from another. Fisting is the worst, one of our group sensationally announced. Oh my God, well that's scary anyway, I said with wide eyes. Can you believe all this is happening? Sister said to me with his usual anxiety. I'm scared. Well, you can get a test if you're really worried, I responded gently. I've heard it takes ages to get a result, he answered, and apparently they can get it wrong. And that is even more terrifying. In 1986, when the first AIDS tests, as we called them, became available, all we knew was that they could tell if you had it, but they couldn't tell you how long you had. The whole criteria of testing for AIDS were confusing. The only test available was an antibody test. This meant you had to be infected for some weeks before you would get a positive result as it relied on detecting antibodies in the bloodstream. On top of that, you needed to wait for another three weeks to get your actual test result. While a person waited, they lived in fear. With a positive diagnosis came the certainty of death and these vibrant young men were simply told to put their affairs in order. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you, Jill, for joining us and for that brilliant reading and for everything you've done for the community and continue to do. You have made a huge difference and now sharing your story will make an even bigger difference. So that's it. The power of telling your story. Never underestimate it. It's incredible. So that was Jill Nolder reading exclusively for us here at the Literary Salon from her memoir, Love from the Pink Palace. 
The book is published by Headline, it's available now in all good bookshops and there are even signed copies available from Goldsboro Books, so get them while they last or you could buy it from our bookshop on bookshop.org. Right, it's time for me to go and blow out the candles on my birthday cake. Have a lovely day.